Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dave McRae, from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and today we'll be talking about relations between Indonesia and the United States at what is an interesting moment in ties between the global superpower and ASEAN's largest nation. We've seen elevated strategic competition between the United States and China, and the world, of course, is also watching Donald Trump's America to understand just how different it might be to the United States in the Obama era. To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Indonesia's former Deputy Foreign Minister and former Ambassador to the United States, Dr. Dino Pati Jalal. Dr. Jalal also served as presidential spokesperson during the Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono administration, and he is the founder of the Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia. Pat Dino, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted to uh, have you on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Now, could I start by asking you about the state of U.S.-Indonesia ties today. Uh, you wrote, just as you were finishing as ambassador to the United States in January 2014, that relations were the best they had ever been. A lot has changed as then. We've got a new president in Indonesia in Joko Widodo. Of course, Donald Trump has been elected in the United States. How do you think the relationship compares today? Well, uh, President Jokowi went to Washington, D.C. Uh, to meet with President Obama last year. And they agreed to elevate the relationship to a strategic partnership. And that was also the time when President Jokowi announced his intention to join with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so it was all going in the right direction. Now there is a new administration in Washington. We are waiting for the Asia policy that is yet to be announced by President Trump's uh, administration we are proceeding with the strategic partnership at the working level. But at the moment, the mood is still, let's wait what's next in terms of policy moves from the Trump administration. But we want to have good relations with the United States, obviously, because the United States is a key partner, key player in the region. And we our trade is declining for some, for some reason. It's now at about $17 billion. But we still hope for sizable U.S. investments uh, into Indonesia. When I left in 2014, there was a study by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that said uh, some $60 billion of U.S. investment was coming into Indonesia in the coming decade or so. So I hope that that remains to be the case uh, today and onward. And what do you think spurred Indonesia to upgrade its relationship to a strategic partnership in 2015? I think the Jokowi administration wanted to convey the impression that uh, relations are going into a new, new level. In, in terms of substance, more or less it's the same. There's economic, trade, investment, security, defense, uh, intelligence, cooperation. The only thing that was new was Indonesia's intention to join Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm. Right? But that's not a bilateral, you know, it's a multilateral arrangement. So I think it signaled the intention of Jokowi government to become even closer with the United States. Uh, so I think that was the policy intention. But if you ask me what policy substance specifically, mm. it's a bit hard to answer beyond what was new, which was the TPP. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about Joko Widodo wanting to take Indonesia or develop a closer relation with the United States, because I guess a lot of the commentary we've heard over the first couple of years or so of his government is that he's placing greater emphasis on developing ties with China. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's anything to that commentary that, in fact, rather than a upgrading of the relationship with the United States, that the one of the most prominent features of 
Jokowi's foreign policy has been this greater emphasis on China? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there is a strong, sorry, closer relationship with China under President Jokowi. Especially this is so because President Jokowi's foreign policy is about economic policy. Mm. His foreign policy is about asking what is it about our international engagement that benefits our domestic audience the most. So that means economics and that means closer relations with China because China is our largest trading partner. Uh, I think, I mean, the United States-Indonesia trade declined from 26 to some 17 billion today. So declined by 10 billion. But with China, it keeps rising. I think they passed the $60 billion mark already. You know, So it's pocketbook uh, diplomacy, and that means uh, that China's influence and relevance to Indonesia's foreign policy and development has also increased uh, significantly. I think what we need to do is to make sure that geopolitically Indonesia maintains strategic autonomy because, you know, it's important for Indonesia's leadership in ASEAN and it's important also for our traditional principle foreign policy. We've always been a country which places emphasis on independent and active foreign policy. So in this context now, uh, with the changing great power relations, the challenge for Indonesia is to be close to Washington, but also close to China, right? And also close to the other major power relations. And this is quite different, Dave, from the past, whereby uh, the approach had been to maintain a distance with all the major powers. I think what President Jokowi needs to do, and this was done also by President Yudhoyono, which is to be, not maintain a distance equally, but be equally proximate to all the major powers. And that's the way we can we become relevant. I mean, with this economic focus, I think you said pocketbook diplomacy under Jokowi, fundamentally, does he see the relationship differently with the United States to what President Yudhoyono did? Definitely under President SBY, there's stronger emphasis on geopolitics. And there's lesser emphasis on geopolitics under President Jokowi. And I think this affects how they see the United States. So the the only thing, the, the new thing, as I said earlier, was on TPP mm. uh, during President Jokowi's visit in 2015. Sorry, I said 2016 earlier. And that reflects, again, his emphasis on the economic side of foreign policy. So with this economic focus, what role does Indonesia now want the United States to play in the region, do you think, whether that be Southeast Asia Asia or the or the Indo-Pacific? Well, we want the United States to be uh, a force that can bring greater stability and peace in, in, in the region. There's now a perception of unpredictability, and I think the, it would be wise for Washington to announce its Asia policy sooner rather than uh, later. We want the United States to be more engaged in the region, and to be honest, the rhetoric America first does not uh, resonate well in the region because we are accustomed to United States being a global leader. And when you're a global leader, that's a very distinguished and privileged position. And you got to give you got to give more than you take. Uh, I mean, to be honest, when we see U.S. presidents, Republican or Democrat, they may have different policies, but there's always one question that uh, they ask and they ask from the region, which is what can the United States do for you, for the mm. region, right? And from what we hear now, it's a different take. Uh, the question is, what can you 
do for the United States. So it's a totally different atmosphere, different feel to it, you know. Um, and we we're still at the pro- at, at the stage of wait and see to see what in policy terms will result out of the America First policy. We're seeing more of the bilateral trades. We're seeing uh, less interest in multilateralism, for sure, less interest in climate change, perhaps less interest in, in the UN, and more on bilateral free trade. So we'll see where, where this is going. Yeah. And I mean, would you anticipate an America First policy might change the way the United States acts with respect to the South China Sea dispute? There's likelihood of a tougher policy stance. I think President Trump has uh, indicated that there's going to be a stronger emphasis on building the naval capability in East Asia, which means that we're going to see more geostrategic condensation uh, in our part of the world. I think there's possibility that strategic tension with China will rise. Some degree, uh, I mean, we hope that there's going to be a balance between statesmanship and pushing back when when they need to do so, you know. But on our part of the region, we we feel that South China Sea will continue to be one one of the key strategic concerns for especially for for Indonesia because uh, now there is between Indonesia and China some issues uh, with regard to the uh, water columns in in the Natuna Islands. Because I mean, the interesting thing with the South China Sea is even before. President Trump, you had criticism from Luhut Panjaitan at the time, he was still the coordinating minister for security, political and legal affairs of freedom of navigation operations from the United States around the South China Sea, saying Indonesia opposed projection of force from from anyone in the area. I mean, if you're foreshadowing there could be a more assertive role again than what we saw under Obama, how would Indonesia receive that sort of stance? And what what policy really would Indonesia like to see from the United States surrounding the, the South China Sea? Obviously, I'm out of government now, yeah, mm. but, but I would project that the government would not want to see the rise of strategic tension uh, in, in the region. So the last scenario we want to see is kind of brinkmanship to return to, to that area. And we want to see progress on the ASEAN-China Code of Conduct which is really the litmus, litmus test of China's goodwill or strategic intention in terms of uh, addressing the South China Sea concerns uh, among ASEAN. So that is going very slowly at the moment. In April, the Philippine government uh, has indicated that the, the, the ASEAN-China dialogue will conclude a framework part of the Code of Conduct Agreement. But that remains to be seen, yeah. But for us, uh, maintaining strategic stability in the South China Sea is, is uh, crucial. Uh, hopefully, China will exercise self-restraint and avoid any unilateral moves. And if they do, uh, hope you know, I expect that the ASEAN countries and international community will say something about that as well, right? Although in the case where that happened, that proved futile. You know, mm-hmm. when China built the reclamated lands. They, they just ignored whatever other countries were, were advising them not to do. You've spoken there a lot about what Indonesia hopes for from China in terms of its conduct. Are there things that the United States can do to encourage that outcome? Look, on the code of conduct, uh, the best thing is for the United States to leave ASEAN to do its work, mm. to conclude the agreement with uh, China. Yeah. 
on the South China Sea proper, I would hope that the United States would remain consistent in promoting freedom of navigation in that part of the world and rule of law, which is the interest of us all, including for Indonesia, because it's very critical for the economic development of the region. But my other hope is rather wishful thinking, David, which is the United States Senate would ratify the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, because this would add strategic predictability to maritime affairs in, in the region. It's, it's very hard battle to do. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and uh, Senator uh, Secretary John Kerry tried to do so, but it's, I think it's going to be even more difficult under the present Senate. But at some point, the United States has to ratify the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. That would add strategic stability to addressing South China Sea issue. Is that something the Indonesian government has taken up directly at a governmental level with the United States, the ratification of UNCLOS? We did in the past. You know, mm. we encouraged them to do so. And uh, to be honest, the last two terms of Obama administration, they tried to do so. You know, they, they know that it's important, but they don't control the Senate. Uh, the Senate has its own mind. So it's this difficult political battle you know, within the United States. But at least... For the U.S. Navy, they, they use now the Convention of the Law of Sea as the, the manual, operational manual. So at least at the operational level, that is what be what is being observed already at the de facto level. Now, you mentioned the Chinese statements that they have an overlapping water column with Indonesia in the vicinity of the Natuna Islands. And obviously, several fishing boat incidents that we saw in the area last year culminated in President Jokowi holding a cabinet meeting aboard a warship in the area to, uh, I guess, assert Indonesian control over the area. At the same time, we've also seen statements from the TNI commander, General Gatot Namantio, raising questions about why US Marines are deployed in rotation to Darwin and are noting the proximity of that deployment to Indonesia's Masela gas block. Mm-hmm. Now, is there, I guess, in the way that China's activities around the Natuna Islands creates apprehension in Indonesia, is there also an apprehension that the US and its military could pose a direct threat to Indonesia because of that deployment in Darwin? I think it's, uh, General Gatot is best to explain what he meant by uh, the statements that he issued. But you know, the, the US presence in Darwin is something that we're very familiar with. And to be honest, we were not happy with how we heard the news for the first time. I remember, I think it was an APEC meeting someplace that our president was asked about it. And, you know, none of us knew any background behind it. And we had to ask, you know, what is going on here? You know, And then we found out. So we wish we had been consulted beforehand. But once it became a reality, we adapted to it. And what we insisted was on transparency. And we even were open to joint exercise and exchanges and visits, right? So I think what needed to be done in terms of, you know, the military cooperation in Darwin within U.S. and Australia is just to continuously promote confidence building and, and communication with the Indonesian side. I admit that within Indonesia, there's some per- perhaps misperception or some concerns about w- what is the strategic intention of this. And I think this can be overcome with better and more communication between Australia, U.S., and Indonesia on this issue. But when General Gatot uh, said it, some media reported it, but uh, there's a lot of people who are more balanced in looking at it. And I think this is an important point, uh, David, 
one of the key points that Indonesians need to understand and one that I see for myself to be true is that the Western countries now have strategic state in a united and democratic Indonesia. I say this because uh, there's uh, some conspiracy theories in Indonesia which believe that Western states want to break up Indonesia. They want to see a weak Indonesia. They don't hear enough that it's actually the other way around. The Western countries, friends of Indonesia, want to see Indonesia democratic and united because a strong Indonesia is good for the region. If Indonesia breaks up, just like in the Middle East, you know, all hell will break loose and nobody will benefit. Right. So I think that is a key strategic message that Western leaders and ambassadors and diplomats should never tire of telling Indonesians. Can I push you now a little bit on the depth of cooperation that we've seen between the United States and Indonesia under first this comprehensive partnership and now the strategic partnership? And I mean, one area that interests me in particular is counterterrorism cooperation and each time you have a United States and Indonesian leader meet, we generally see statements of an ambition to work more closely together on counterterrorism. Both governments obviously have repudiated ISIS and its ideology and activities. But I guess when we look at actual concrete cooperation, for instance, Indonesia didn't join the US-led 65-country global coalition to counter ISIL. We've seen criticism from Vice President Yusuf Kala of a military approach to extremism. Could you take me through, are Indonesia and the United States on the same page when it comes to combating ISIS or are there differences in their approach that really limit the cooperation the two countries can engage in? Well, obviously there are going to be some differences, but first, the first point to recognize is that the counterterrorism cooperation between Indonesia and US is something that changed the relationship in the beginning. Because uh, before that, before the September 11, you know, the U.S. thought Indonesia was important, but, you know, in, in sort of normal attention given to a large country. But after 9-11, counterterrorism became the core issue. And that changed the strategic importance of uh, Indonesia being the largest Muslim country in the world, right? So after that, counterterrorism cooperation really progressed and it led to uh, successful counterterrorism efforts in Indonesia, uh, one of the most successful in the world because we have, judging from the number of people who have been apprehended in our cooperation. But the secret is that we kept this from the political arena and we kept it simply as a matter of law enforcement and intelligence cooperation. So the success of counterterrorism in the past and in the future is really the same. Make sure you don't turn it into political football between the politicians and make sure you keep it just close and contained and professional, right? But in terms of fighting ISIL, there has been some problems uh, in Indonesia in terms of our law. We looked at the law. We, ha we have prohibited Indonesians from fighting and uh, joining ISIS. But once they return, we don't have the legal framework to arrest them. And changing the law takes time in Indonesia. But we've also believed there's a built-in belief in Indonesian political thinking that there's always limitation of what purely military action can do. So that is what we thought under SBY. But also this is what we President Jokowi is uh, thinking as well. right? Uh, just So just relying on military action alone uh, will not necessarily solve the problem. 
So it's got to be military action plus, plus, plus. What is that plus, plus, plus? Again, that is something that can be discussed and determined uh, further. But definitely a military strike, military action alone is not going to solve the problem. Now, another of Indonesia's major foreign policy priorities going back many, many years is its support for Palestinian independence. Whereas we've seen the United States, by contrast, doesn't recognize a Palestinian state and has, I guess, opposed its recognition at the United Nations. Do those different stances on the Palestine question, does, has that become an issue in US-Indonesia relations? We were very happy with President Bush when he announced the two-state policy. Uh, we thought it was a brave move, much awaited, and he delivered. So we were not confident that uh, it would become a reality. And in fact, it had many roadblocks. And until now... Palestinian independent state still does not exist and it's becoming less and less likely every day that uh, it will it will happen so that is a matter of concern from for, for us when president trump got elected my group the foreign policy community of indonesia urged the government to have good relations with the trump administration but be very clear to keep our stance when issues or principles take place or a challenge, including the Palestine issue. So, and it looks like this is going to be a problem with the Trump administration. So I hope the government would make it clear to the Trump administration of our position that uh, two-state solution remains the viable and uh, reasonable political future. And we hope that they will work towards the creation of independent Palestinian state and don't compromise on that principled position. I mean, obviously, as you've mentioned, it's hard at the moment to get a read on the Trump administration's foreign policy, and we see contradictory pronouncements at at different points. But if the United States were to move away from that two-state policy, how would that affect US relations with Indonesia? It would affect... I mean, obviously, we would not cut diplomatic relations with Mm. the United States, but it would change the psychology of the relationship because for Indonesia, the one issue that every grassroots know about and is mentioned in every Friday prayers throughout Indonesia is the Palestine issue, right? I mean, they don't know about the TPP, they don't know about APEC or the UN or G20, but the grassroots know about the Palestine. And all they want is Palestine must be independent. So if the United States is seen as uh, to be going against that, I think it will have a serious public profile in Indonesia. And it would, uh, I'm, I'm sure the government would maintain good relations, but it would be a different conversation in my prediction. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned at various points throughout our conversation the changes that we're seeing unfolding under President Trump. Can I ask you, How has his election been viewed within Indonesia? And how do people in Indonesia feel that what direction is he likely to take the United States in? Well, Indonesians were not inspired by U.S. elections this year. We were very inspired by the Obama elections. But last year's elections were just, Indonesians were just confused about the the messaging. And especially about the messages that came out of President Trump's campaign team. So the one issue that they pay attention to was on the Muslim side. Uh, on the streets, people are always asking me because they know I was ambassador in the United States. So it's uh, Trump anti-Muslim, you know, the, that sentiment was always asked. 
And I think that formed a lot of public perception towards him. When Trump banned, um, made the visa ban on the six or seven countries from the Middle East, that also made the national headlines and reinforced the perception that he was not friendly towards Muslims. I know that anecdotally there are some families who you used to go to the United States to, for vacation who have canceled, right? And when I was in Washington recently, uh, this was confirmed to me that uh, in Asia, there's a considerable decline of visits to the United States. Again, I don't have the numbers, but this is what my friends told me. So I think Trump administration needs to address this uh, serious perception issue because you know, U.S. soft power is really what makes the United States attractive to the region. Obama, you know, some people have different views about him, but was wildly popular in, in Indonesia. They like him. You know. They like his policy towards Myanmar. They like his policy towards Palestine. They like his policy towards Cuba. Very progressive ways of looking at climate challenges and, and so on, you know. So President Trump is not seen as a progressive president, but we remain open-minded. We want to see what his first policy moves towards Asia and towards Indonesia uh, will be. And I hope it's the right one. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence will come to Indonesia, I think, 19 and 20th of April, and we'll see what he has to say then. Would you expect the issue of the restrictions on visas from various Muslim-majority countries, the type of rhetoric we had from Trump about Muslim immigration during the campaign, to become an issue when Pence visits Jakarta? I think it's something that he will have to explain. So far, Indonesia is not part of that ban, and that's what the government has been telling our people. But to be honest, I think it's a principled issue for us. I mean, the last countries that we expect this to come from is the United States. So there is perception on the streets in Indonesia this is an anti-Muslim policy. And there was a lot of mentioning about this Christians were exempted from the ban, which reinforced this uh, perception. So I think in, in, in Indonesia, we have to, you know, this is a principal issue. We have to speak up about it. I, I find it rather ironic that the countries that are speaking up most about this were Christian European countries defending Muslims in this issue rather than Muslim countries themselves. Muslim countries generally were, were quiet in defending Muslims who were getting banned from the United States. Yeah, I so, find it very ironic. Yeah, no, well, certainly I was going to ask you, would we expect to see a statement from Jakarta about these bans? I don't know, to be honest. We have to see when the visit takes place. But I, I hope President Yoko will raise it when he meets with Vice President Mike Pence because no matter what the change of government in Washington, the dictum is still the same, which is world peace cannot be assured so long as there is uneasy relations between the West and the Islamic world. Right. This is the enduring feature of the 21st century world. You know, even within the Islamic world, you know, there's tension and conflicts and issues. Right. So we got to get the equation right. You know, I think President Trump has to be very careful to avoid the relations within the Western world and Islamic world deteriorating even further to the point that uh, it's out of control. And you mentioned this America first paradigm where we've seen a shift from what can the U.S. do for the region to what can the region do for the United States? What would you anticipate Vice President Pence might communicate in that regard in terms of a Trump administration's expectations of Indonesia? I was just in Washington uh, recently, and mm. uh, you know, I hear they're, they're carefully crafting the message. But for sure, 
if it comes to the region, to Indonesia, and overstress the America first policy, that's the wrong move, right? That's the wrong move. I think also they need to stress the soft power aspect in terms of U.S. engagement in, in, in the region because that's what works. That's what wins people's heart, you know. I mean, in that context, how big an issue in U.S.-Indonesia relations is it that Trump has taken the TPP off the table? I think from survey data, the TPP wasn't widely known at the community level in Indonesia, perhaps not in Australia as well. But you mentioned it was the one thing perhaps that the intention Jokowi expressed to join was perhaps the one thing that differentiated the relationship from the Yudhoyono era. I mean, at the Indonesian government level, do you think there's concern that the TPP is no more or it really wasn't that much of a priority in any, in any case? The concern was that the TPP was President Joko Widodo's boldest foreign policy move. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last two and a half years, that's the most important foreign policy move that he personally made. But that's not going to happen now. So uh, I think the game is changing to RCEP, a Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, but that too is going slow. My group, FPCI, has advocated that, look, you know, maximize Indonesia's membership in ASEAN economic community. We're not taking advantage of that as optimally as we should. I mean, the best example is Indonesia is the largest economy by far in Southeast Asia. But we are number four in terms of exporting our products to ASEAN. Number one is Singapore. Number two is Malaysia. Number three is Thailand. And we're number four exporters to ASEAN market. So there's a lot of untapped potentials that we can maximize while we also seek new opportunities. And that includes the relationship with Australia. Because, you know, Australia is a next-door neighbor. But our trade and investment is still relatively low relative to the potentials of both countries. Okay. If you describe the intention to join the TPP as Jokowi's boldest move, do you think he'll be looking for something new on the economic front with the United States to replace that? There's no move to that at the moment from Jakarta, and there's no move from Washington. I think Washington's emphasis on bilateral free trade would be with Japan and with Britain. Right. But even then, Washington is getting to realize that it's very complicated to do bilateral free trade deals. You don't have enough people to negotiate. You don't have enough resources. And you don't know if you can conclude in, in four years. right? So why not have an open mind on plurilateralist approach, you know, such as TPP? You know? So for the moment, I don't see it. I don't see it that way. There's no move at the moment. But perhaps after the Mike Pence visit, there'll be something new. Beyond Mike Pence, I've seen you in an open letter to the Trump administration back in January Mm -hmm. calling for Donald Trump to attend the East Asia Summit personally in Manila this year. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's likely and why would it be important? It's important because we want to hear from President Trump himself. What are your intentions with regard to Asia and all our economic challenges? And showing up is always an important part of showing commitment to the regional processes, right? So I know he's made commitment to attend G20, right? And we're still waiting for the EAS and the APEC. Is there any chance that his presence at these summits could be counterproductive if he were to, you know, depending on his rhetoric? It's a good question. I hope that he will be a good listener. Right? Because in these meetings, when you have a new kid on the block, so to speak, 
you don't want that new kid in the block to jump in and start dominating the meetings. That would be the last thing that could happen in these meetings. So I hope he's wise enough and his advisors are brave enough to advise uh, President Trump that, look, you come in, but, you know, show a good face, but, uh, you know, listen more. You know, we are, we are the new kid on the block in these meetings, and it's, it's worth how you carry yourself is as important of what will be said. That's certainly what uh, President Obama did when he first joined the APEC meetings and so on. He sent good messages, but he also did not try to dominate, you know, so... It's important, especially in the Asian context. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, we see a very different president in the United States in Donald Trump. I think a very different president in Indonesia in Joko Widodo compared to Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono. What do you see as the prospects for U.S.-Indonesia ties over, over the remainder of these two leaders' terms? Well, first, the two leaders have to meet. I don't know when Jokowi and Trump will meet, but my prediction is when they meet, they will get along because they're both... Uh, entrepreneurs. They both see foreign policy in terms of economic deals, and they're easygoing, less protocol. So I think at a personal level, they get on well. And the question is, if that happens, how do they translate and convert that into stronger policy cooperation between the two countries? But the opportunity is there. What about beyond leader level? How do the two publics play into the prospects for U.S.-Indonesia relations? Well, at the moment, there's a sensitive issue on, on Freeport. It's a very big issue in Indonesia, very politically sensitive. And I think that is one challenge, how that issue plays out and being resolved. That will affect public perception towards the United States. And it will also somewhat impact on U.S. investors' perception towards Indonesia. Yeah. So I think if you ask me what is the one issue that needs to be resolved, it is this Freeport issue. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A massive golden copper mine that every Indonesian would have heard of, but I'm imagining very few Americans would even be aware right. of. Um, very right. Is, is this something for the U.S. government to play a role in resolving, or is it something that really has to be worked out by the company involved? I think the preference is for something to be worked out at the company level. But beyond that, I'm not sure if the United States government will get involved. But I think it's better for this to be resolved at the at the company level. But because Freeport is the largest and one of the oldest uh, U.S. investors in Indonesia, this obviously attracts a lot of attention, both domestically and uh, internationally. And I mean, the mine has become an issue because both of these bans on the export of raw minerals and the looming extension of its contract of works and ambitions within Indonesia to change the terms of that agreement. What would a resolution that took Freeport off the table as, a, as an issue in US-Indonesia ties look like? I don't know. Mm. Uh, this is a very tough nut to crack because everybody has already come out with their position. Uh, the Indonesian government has already come up with the 51% bottom line divestment yes uh, an expectation that this is something that must be uh, done and this is seen as something uh, impossible to do uh, on the freeport side and a lot of these debates are out in the open in public which is for me is not wise i think they should just keep the negotiations in, in closed door and keep it away from public sentiments but you know we'll see how this plays out everything that is brought out exposed to emotional public sentiment is going to be very hard to resolve in a reasonable way in the end. You know, so. now, but, you know, it's clear there's a lot to watch in U.S.-Indonesia ties over, over the next few months and years, and there's a lot more I'd like to ask you about it, but I'm afraid we're 
well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it very much. That was Dr. Dino Patijalal, founder of the Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia, former Deputy Foreign Minister, Ambassador to the United States, and Presidential Spokesperson. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And we'd love for you to leave us feedback or a rating via any of those channels. Talking Indonesia will return on 27 April with my co-host, Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.